Good day, everyone, and welcome back to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Good to have you along with us today on the podcast. My name is Mark Vandermoss, your host today on Radio Free Acton, and uh, joined today in studio in the brand new Acton Studios by our guest, Robert P. Murphy. Bob Murphy is an economist. He is the senior economist, actually, at the Institute for Energy Research. Uh, he is a research fellow at the Independent Institute, so he's he's all over the place in the in the think tank world too. Uh, he's a PhD in economics from New York University, author of several books, including Lessons for the Young Economist, uh, which was released in 2010, and the book that I have here in my hand right now, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, which was released back in 07. And I just want to point out a little error, but I I don't know if there's a way to have a politically correct capitalism. Have you? Have you discovered that? Oh, but in, in, in hel- hello and welcome, of course. But <laughs> well, well, thanks for having me here. Pleasure. Uh, yeah, we should probably look into that. Maybe I can get it, another book going. It just seems like it would be you'd have the little errata page that you'd tuck into the front cover and just just note that capitalism itself probably not politically correct <laughs> as as a rule. But I want to I want to get to get to talking with you because uh, today, as as it turns out, as we're recording this, is election day. Uh, it's it's a particularly, I think, appropriately gloomy, gray day in West Michigan here as we record. Um, and uh, today is also Acton Lecture Series Day, and you delivered a lecture today uh, called uh, The Importance of Sound Money. And I think we can both agree that it was a white-knuckle thrill ride, <laughs> a gripping, gripping lecture that left everyone on the edge of their seats begging for more. Well, yes, it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, and, 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 and by saying that, I should say... Of course, it wasn't because it's sound money. It's it's a topic that people, I think, don't normally talk about and don't normally even think about. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. I mean, with these things, it's it's tricky uh, because a lot of these issues, as an economist, I talk to the general public, and it's really important stuff they need to know, but it is kind of intense. You can't just open with a bunch of jokes and keep oh, yeah. there. You know, it's, it's, it's deep stuff, and so it's... You, you do run that that risk as a public speaker to make the, you know the trade off between well gee I can't give them too much and plus you know they're eating they might fall asleep but yeah it's you can you can easily drown your audience in sort of the the minutia of the of the subject right right yeah so you do try to strike a balance but the thing is especially since two thousand eight people realize something is fundamentally wrong with our financial system money and banking and so when they do find people who seem to share their skepticism or alarm. And can explain things in a straightforward fashion, then they do uh, want to hear what what that person has to say. Well, let's start off with the very basics of the, of the subject. And in, in the the title of the speech itself involved sound money. Um, the first thing that that I'd want to ask you about, as an economist, you, this is probably one of the big challenges that you face, if anyone ever thinks to ask the question. But what is money? How do we understand money? I mean, I think money is something that the average person never thinks about it. It's just something that's in our wallet or in our hand or it's an, an abstract thing that exists in an account somewhere and we slide our debit card through a machine and somehow a transaction takes place that deletes money from our account and puts it somewhere else. But but fundamentally, what is money? Why is it? Why does it exist? Well, the way a textbook would define it is to say it's a medium of exchange that everyone accepts. But then you say, well, what, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. So the way I tried to get it across in the lecture today was to say that money is an institution. It's something humans have created. It's a, it's a social thing that helps us facilitate 
our transactions with each other. And so fundamentally, money is something that it allows you to split up your sale and purchase. So ultimately, in the economy, we're all trading with each other. We're producing things that other people value so that in turn, we can enjoy things that they produce for us. And money is this mechanism by which we can sort of break those buying and selling transactions up so that you can sell to the people who want what you have that you don't need to desire what they have in exchange. Instead, they can give you money and then you go and get, take the money and, and spend it on somewhere else. So money is like a go between an intermediary that ultimately allows us to hook up with other people so that we can sell what we have to offer and buy what they have to offer. So money is this tool that opens up the economy to us. Essentially, it opens up a whole range of possibilities that wouldn't exist without it. Right. It, it facilitates complex exchanges involving lots of people. So now the next question that, that comes up now that we know what money is, what, is it, what does it need? What, 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 what are the elements that are required in order for money to be considered something that's worth exchanging? What, what, I guess what is what, – what consists of a sound currency? Well, yeah, it's a great question. And that, of course, is the, the title of the talk that it's not just money, but a, but a sound money or the, the actual title was the importance of sound money. Mm -hmm. So that adjective sound there, meaning in, the, in terms of like has a solid foundation is something that can withstand pressure. And for, for money to be sound in this, I'm using that term out of the classical liberal tradition, people talked about the importance of sound money. It means that it's free from uh, wild swings in its purchasing power. Okay, so that it provides a foundation that people can plan using it. They have some idea of what the money is going to be worth down the road. And so historically, the biggest threat to sound money has been government currency debasement, right? That if the government gets involved in the production or distribution of money, they, as you can imagine, have all sorts of designs and debase the currency. They create more money and that makes it harder to use it. So Money, what we've been talking about, money doesn't fulfill its function as well if I sell my services for money, but then next week I go to buy things and all of a sudden the money price of everything has doubled, right? Then yes, I, yes. if I didn't see that coming, that's going to really you know thwart my plans. And so in general, if we're not confident in society in the stability of the purchasing power of money, it doesn't fulfill that function as well. Because money is acting as a stand-in for something else, Correct. Right, yeah. So again, it, it allows us to split up the transactions instead of directly in the same transaction having buyer and seller swap the ultimate things. Money is the go-between or the intermediary or what's the technical terms of medium of exchange. So something through which the ultimate exchanges are effected and it doesn't perform that function as well if it's really volatile in its purchasing power. So the, the question that flows from that is uh, it, traditionally – uh, what has been? What has? What has? In, let's let's just take the United States here. What has our money been? A, what, if you take a dollar bill, what does that dollar bill stand for in 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 real terms? Traditionally, prior to say nineteen seventy, right? Nineteen seventy one was 71, the, the yes. point when Richard Nixon closed the gold window. So historically, not just the U.S. dollar, but other what we would think of as sovereign currencies that you know the French had the franc and German had the mark, and so the British pound. All of those national currencies were defined in terms of weights of either silver or gold, depending on the time period. So for the United States, for example, for a long period of time, uh, up until 1933, 
$20.67 would get you an ounce of gold. All right. And so that was how it wasn't like that the the government just targeted that like that was some sort of macroeconomic policy. It was like legally you were entitled to that. That's what the dollar mm-hmm. really was. So people if you read economists of that era, it it's they didn't think in terms of dollars and francs and whatnot. They thought of the world's money being gold. And it was just these governments would issue tickets that were claims on gold. That was the way they thought that they thought merchants thought in terms of, of gold. And that mm-hmm. was ultimately mm-hmm. what the money really was. And so, but they got, of course, the public to accept the paper notes issued by the governments because of the redeemability. And then once the public got used to using them, they finally stopped, you know, they, they, they canceled the redeemability. And now people were just stuck with, Unbacked pieces of paper, what's called fiat currency. Yeah. Now this is this is why uh, the government has always, uh, or we we always, growing up, the Fort Knox was a big deal uh, to to me as a kid and to my friends because that was where there was we knew there was gold at Fort Knox. So the government would it actually did hold and still does hold tons of gold, real gold. And at one point, you could go and exchange your currency for actual gold. Right. And so that. This period it was called the glass, classical gold standard was this era where you – know, and that was – it really was hurt in the First World War. A bunch of the countries went off of it and then it never really was re- restored. But there was a period what was called the classical gold standard where all the major powers faithfully redeemed their currencies in terms of gold. And so it, it sort of harmonized world trade. You really did have everyone using the same money. And it, it provided a balance and, and merchants in different countries could easily like they wouldn't have to worry about, well, gee, what if I buy my raw materials in Spain and then I have them processed in England and then my markets are in the United States? They could on their books plan and have those operations and not worry about prices swinging one way or the other in each of those areas because it was all ultimately the currencies were all as good as gold. And so it was basically yeah. like using gold as the money, the world's money. Hence the term as good as gold. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. And to go back to your point that, yes, the way the governments backed up that redeemability was they literally stockpiled gold so that if people did turn in the paper currency, they would get actual physical gold in exchange. And so the governments had to stockpile it. And if they inflated too rapidly, if they printed too many of their paper tickets, you know, if the U.S. government made too many dollars, Ultimately, that would set in motion a chain of events that would lead gold flowing out of the vaults of the U.S. government into, say, the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, the under the classical gold standard. That was the ultimate check on monetary inflation was that if all the governments wanted to maintain that tie to gold, they knew, well, gee, if our vaults are running low, we got to stop printing these pieces of paper because people are just going to you know, run on the on the vault, so to speak. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. 1971 comes along. Richard Nixon's administration takes us off of the gold standard. Since that time, what does our money stand for? Well, legally speaking, nothing. <laughs> right? So you could, you know, if you go, if you take a twenty dollar bill to the Federal Reserve and say, "What do I get for it?" They could say, "Well, two tens, four fives. What do you want? You know, twenty singles, right?" So the the dollar is not backed up by anything. I mean, people will say, "Oh, the full faith and credit of the U.S. government," but but no, actually, it's it that doesn't mean anything, right? The full there, there's the government can't default on the outstanding Federal Reserve notes because they're not claims on anything anymore. So it, it's it's interesting. In terms of the accounting, the Federal Reserve on its books still lists the outstanding paper notes as liabilities. And that harkens back to the day when they really were claim tickets on gold. Sure, yeah. But 
that that's just an accounting fiction at this point. That there 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 is no it's not it's not it doesn't entitle you to anything. So we can still value it and as an economist. I can still explain its purchasing power. It's because we have expectations, and so if you think a twenty dollar bill will fetch you a certain amount of goods in the market tomorrow, you'd be willing to sell your stuff today in exchange for that twenty dollar bill. So there's that bootstrapping element, and we can explain. So it, it's not that it's worthless, obviously. Like if somebody holds me up at gunpoint and takes all the cash in my wallet, you know, I'm, I'm out money and I'm sure that, yeah. that's bad. But the point is, in terms of is it a sound currency, what's what's it, you know, maintaining its value in the long term or how can we be confident and plan on the future knowing what the dollar is going to be able to buy 20 years from now? The point is, without that link to gold, it's a much more tenuous foundation. We're ultimately just trusting in the wise judgment of the people running the Federal Reserve that they're not going to do something foolish, which is sort of a – I'm trying not to laugh as yeah, I the, say the, that. The next question is, what what do you think of the wisdom of the folks running the Federal Reserve? I, the, in, in the, but it's, it's, a, it's a legitimate question. If if the, the money that we have isn't actually backed up with anything, and, it, and, and this is sort of a kind of a, a fiction that we all maintain – what are the real world consequences that we've experienced now since we've gone off the gold standard? The real world, the, I, I think there are some of them that are sort of obvious, but I'll let you just, uh, you know, tick off a few things that the average person is going to experience since we since 1971 and the in the subsequent years. Well, sure. So there were actually a series of things that first started under FDR of suspending uh, the dollar's redeemability in terms of gold. But yeah, so the 1971, the reason people focus on that is that's when. Richard Nixon finally officially said that that's it. You know, even other central banks, there, there's nothing. You know, if you give us dollars, you don't get anything in return. Sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I used to do with my students is I would show a chart of the consumer price index over time, and you could see in the 1970s it really took off. And so I said, if you just saw this and you forgot your dates and wanted to know when did the U.S. remove the link of the dollar to gold. You could see, well, it was right before price inflation really took off, right? So what I'm saying is it's not a coincidence that Americans, especially older ones, remember the stagflation of the 70s. It's not a coincidence that it happened right after they severed the link to gold. So specifically, it was that once they knew, the the Federal Reserve recognized that there was no more any legal constraints. It wasn't like there could be a run on the gold vault or the, the gold that was in the vaults. They were free to print more dollars to help you know fuel the deficit spending and whatnot, and that led to uh, rise in prices. Right, more dollars chasing the same amount of goods makes prices go up. So that's uh, ultimately you know the, the the first peacetime major stagflation that the U.S. experienced. And again, that's that's not a coincidence. And then also, many economists think that. Um, the specific way that new money enters the economy helps explain the business cycle. So, for example, the recent housing bubble and bust, I personally think that was because after the dot-com boom and crash, Alan Greenspan was the Fed chair at the time, and he brought interest rates way down. And how does he do that? By injecting more money, right? It's not mm-hmm. that they just, yeah. you know, he can't actually make interest rates do whatever he wants. The, the mechanism is by pumping in more money in the credit markets. So that gave a false appearance of prosperity, and that pushed up the housing bubble, and of course it came crashing down. So I would say most of what Americans think of as our volatile economy, and gee, prices just keep going up and up all the time, and things there's wild swings. I would say that is all fundamentally due to the fact that we no longer have a sound money. 
Is it possible? It, it, well, let me let me let me put it this way. Is it? I, I guess I can put it in in sort of two ways. Is it possible uh, to return to a gold standard, and is it a realistic option given the the atmosphere that we live in now, given the public's understanding of the issue, uh, given maybe even the understanding of the issue in Washington? Is is it even? Is it a legitimate possibility to to have that happen again? I'm not sure politically. I mean, I think some country or some government, I don't know that it would be the U.S. government, but I, I imagine if the dollar does crash, some other government would want to come into the onto the scene with their currency. And I think a way they could get world investors to embrace it is if they backed it up either with gold or a basket of commodities, one commodity of which would be gold. Mm-hmm. I, I could see that happening in the next 20 years. Um. How, uh, just to clarify, though, even though I'm a big fan of the classical gold standard, nowadays it's not that I'm going around saying I think the U.S. government should tie the dollar back to gold. If they did it, that would be better than what they've been doing. Sure. Yeah. But it's because I think what would happen is then the next crisis that came along, they would just go off the gold standard again. And Untie it. Would dis- it, yeah. it would discredit it. So I'm more radical in saying I would want the government to get out of the money business altogether and just encourage people to you know to own gold themselves and you know that's mm-hmm. so in a sense legalizing private money so to speak and let the market produce the money to, to me I mean that so that's much more politically unrealistic but to me that seems like a a long-term solution as opposed to just having them do a policy for a while that then they would abandon when it really got inconvenient. And that's something we don't really have time to get into that here on the podcast but you did talk about that to some extent about how money arose from uh, more private means than having a, a government, a state-imposed sort of currency, right? Historically, I mean, I think people, a lot of people, just assume because governments right now control the money and issue it, they think that's a traditional function of government. And well, surely the state has always created money, and that's where it came from. And historically and economically, that that's not correct. That money aver- emerged spontaneously from market transactions, and I think. Uh, so, so there's no reason to believe that, that the government needs to be in control of money. In fact, if you don't trust the government in control of you know, your health care or food supply or making automobiles, <laughs> why would you want a bunch of politicians in charge of the money? If you think about it like that, that's kind of crazy. It's, well, when you, when you put it in terms of letting politicians control it, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of people who think you know, a light bulb goes on. Oh, wait a minute. That might not be a good idea. They've done so well in so many other areas. <laughs> Um, in, in speaking of politicians, since we're it's it's election day, it's November four, uh, and and um, people are heading to the polls today. What's your what would be some pointers for from from your perspective as an economist, as a person who has a historical perspective on the problems that we have today with our our currency and with the well out of control spending that we have in Washington and in the in in the states too? I mean, it's not just Washington. What are some practical steps that the average person who isn't an economist, what are some things that they can look for in a person running for office that that they can say, okay, this person is at least moving in the right direction. This is something that this person might get what the importance of a sound currency and would be willing to take some steps to, to actually move us in that direction. What, what should we look for as voters? Well, I think as far as economic literacy, people need to realize that the state can only give you something if they took it away from somebody else in the first True. place, right? So mm-hmm. that 
to, to get out of this mindset of thinking that, oh, you know, all those things that the government could be spending its money on. Well, I like those things, so I should support those programs. And that's not really the issue. The issue is, are those things more important than whatever we don't have as a society because of the taxes or the deficits that were used to fund those programs? And so that's, uh, I think, a really, it's a simplistic point, but yet so many people fail to appreciate that. Nobody thinks of the trade-offs. Exactly, right. Uh, but then as, as far as what people, I mean, it, it, I'm always offering a paradox that it's someone who's willing to say something unpopular, but that's, that's truth. That that's the kind of person that I think, you know, would make the true statesman as opposed to, you know, the, the political panderers. But it's almost by definition that person's not going to win the election. So, <laughs> well, you know, you know, one of the things that I think uh, we want to do at Acton is develop a culture of people who actually think about politics and think about economics and 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 consider the long term ramifications of their votes. And oftentimes, I think the folks who do that are the ones who can listen to a politician like that and appreciate right. what he says. And so that's that's what we have to do. We have to build that culture. You're right, um, Robert P. Murphy. I want to thank you for joining us today. We're running out of time for our podcast, but uh, we are going to post your uh, lecture online as well. Hopefully people will be able to take a, take a view of that. Uh, it's going to be on YouTube on Acton's channel, and uh, I'm sure you'll post it somewhere too. You, you have a blog, by the way. Uh, I want to, it's called Free Advice, which is the fantastic kind of advice. Um, consultingbyrpm.com, I believe. Yep, that's it. Robert Murphy, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, check out his uh, blog at consultingbyrpm.com. The book uh, that I have here, uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, you can probably pick that up at Amazon and all your other booksellers. And uh, we hope to have you back at Acton again sometime. Great. It was a pleasure. I love being here. And it's a great facility. For those who haven't visited, I'd encourage them to check it out. It's a wonderful place. And, Bob, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Stop wasting my time. You know what I want. You know what I need. Oh, maybe you don't. Do I have to come right back? Give me some money.